0: The scripture reading today is from Exodus 1-8 through two ten. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with vitamin and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw them basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her,
1: Has anybody here fought the law? Um, I found it; it doesn't go so well. I did it one time when I got a parking ticket. This wasn't the first parking ticket that I had received, mind you. I used to live downtown, so I got a lot of them. Um, but... I got a parking ticket, and this one time it was unjust. I knew it was unjust because I parked in the free parking, and it was one-hour parking, and I went into the store, and I came back 10, 15 minutes max later, and there was a ticket there saying that I had violated the one-hour parking. I got really upset about this, and then I realized, wait a second. I can fight this because I can prove that I was not there for an hour. First of all, because 45 minutes before... I had been at home and my wife could swear testimony saying, he was here at, and I was not there in the parking lot. Even better than that, I had a Burger King receipt from a few minutes before when I actually arrived, meaning that I had documented proof that I was not there in that parking lot. And I was like, I am going to stick it to the man. I was excited about this. So I researched how you did I didn't know how you do this, but apparently you do this. You go downtown, and there's like a court for like petty claims, and you can contest any ticket. I was like, this is amazing. That's great. So I, I waited in this very sad waiting room, and I waited for my time to be called in front of the judge. And when it was my time, I went in front of the magistrate, and I said, Your Honor, I don't know if he was supposed to be called Your Honor, but I called, Your Honor, I'd like to contest this ticket because I have absolute proof that I was not there in the parking lot. And he looks at me very unamused. He's like, what do you got? I say, well, first of all, my wife here is to give sworn testimony. I was not there in the parking lot at the time that it says I was. He's like, and I also have a Burger King receipt, which this is pretty amazing. Check out this Burger King receipt. He's like, let me see that receipt. I'm like, it says that I I was over there, not there. And he does this. He, He looks at the receipt. He looks at me. He looks at Christina, looks at the receipt, looks at me, looks at Christina, looks at the receipt. He's like, how about this? Let's split the difference. I said, excuse me? He said, like, it's a $5 ticket, pay $250. I was like, is that your final judgment? <laughs> He's like, yes. So I went up to the clerk and I gave her $3 and she gave me 50 cents back. And I realized that day that when you fight the law, the law wins. Or at the very least, it's gonna make you split the difference. Defiance is tricky. Well, friends, we're in a series called Get Out. And in Get Out, we're following two storylines. One storyline in the book of Exodus, one in the book of Acts. And uh, we who have been preaching have been amazed at just how many parallels there are between these two books. We're checking out those parallels. So today and next Sunday, we'll take a look at the theme of defiance. Defiance. Israel defies Pharaoh's eugenics program, and the disciples next week will hear them defying the Jewish authorities' orders not to preach Jesus. And the thesis for this morning is that there are times when believers can and should defy wicked political decisions. The women in Israel, the unlikeliest of political actors, show us how to do this through actions that are life-giving and inspired by the fear of the Lord. If we go to the next slide, Garrett, here's the first point that I wanna bring before you. A few points from our, our text. The first thing I want us to observe is this, that sometimes defiance is necessary, not just possible, but it's, it's necessary to defy the state, to fight the power, and some of you are like, yeah, did you hear what the preacher said? Fight the power, fight the man. That's what we're supposed to do, that's what we Christians are, well, before you go there, Consider that in most places, the scriptures actually tell us that we should be honoring of the state. Uh, Romans 13, for example, tells us that we're told to submit to the governing authorities. This is our default. We're to treat them as authorities appointed by God. Romans 13.3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Governing authorities don't do that perfectly, of course, but that's their basic purpose to uphold justice by penalizing wrongdoing. And we're like, we can be thankful for that. So let it be stated for the record that Life Church, as a Bible believing church, is pro government. We abide by the law. We cooperate with public run programs to bless our community. We pray for our officials. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if Life Church got known for that church that when public officials see us coming, they go, hey, there's some people with integrity. Yep, we can work with them. But that doesn't mean that the government, whether local, state, or federal, is our final authority. What happens when we are commanded to obey a wicked law? Indeed, what happens when a government becomes so corrupt that they completely invert their purpose and they begin rewarding evil and penalizing good and they become an anti-government? Well, this is the situation that God's people are in, in our passage this morning. We find that Pharaoh has done something awful to the Hebrews. He has, if you look in verse 11 of chapter 1, he has set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. He's put them into slavery, and not just any slavery, like hard labor slavery, and he's afflicting them. He wants them to suffer, even though they've done nothing wrong. And then he goes further in verse 16. He tells the Hebrew midwives, those who are helping women deliver babies, if it's a son, you shall kill him. The girls you can let live, because we're not really concerned about them. But the boys, yep, let's kill the boys. And they're commanded to commit these abortions as soon as the baby is born. Is justice driving these plans? No, not one bit. Pharaoh is driven by racist fear. He worries, if you look in verse 9, he worries that the Israelites are too many and too mighty for us. They're too many and they're too mighty for us. If you ever hear something in your heart saying something like that, understand it is not from God, that some group is too many or too mighty. That's what Pharaoh says. His fearful response is to implement the twin policies of slavery and eugenics, you know this term, eugenics? Um, it's when you have a policy that tries to get good genes by eliminating bad genes. By saying people with good genes will keep them, but people who have bad genes, we want to get rid of them in some way. Pharaoh is trying to make God's people small, even exterminate them. Well, Pharaoh is successful with the first part of his program. He successfully enslaves this mighty group of people. He forces them to do hard labor. But he's not successful in the second, that when he commands these midwives to commit murder, they refuse. And indeed, we're told in verse 12 that the more they were oppressed, these Israelites, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And what this leads to, then, is this kind of pattern of obsession we see with Pharaoh. In this case, he's obsessed with enslaving them and obsessed with his eugenics program. And he has become not the government, but the anti-government. And so here, when we look at this first point, then, sometimes defiance is necessary. It's really necessary only in two places. Um... Here's a quick teaching. I see this passage very much aligning with the rest of Scripture. There are two places, brothers and sisters, where we have to defy the government. The first is this: if you go to that next slide, that when the state prohibits us from making disciples. Now, now we're not just talking about any policy here. Um, by the way, we live in a democratic society. Praise the Lord! You, the people, are in charge. You get to influence politics. You get to elect officials. I'm not talking about those things. I'm saying when the state makes some kind of authoritative dictate that says, you are not allowed to be Christians. You are not allowed to make disciples. You are not allowed to evangelize. You're not allowed to t-. we we defy that. Let it just be stated for the record right now. Jesus commands us to disobey in moments like that. Because here's the thing: our mission here at Life Church, our mission as Christians, wherever you go, is the same. We make disciples. We have to tell people the good news of Jesus. We have to. We have to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have to teach people everything that Jesus commanded. And we're going to go out and we're going to love people and include the marginalized. We're going to do all these things in Jesus' name to make disciples. That's what we're about. And we're unrepentant about that. We will never stop doing it. I'm thankful for the Constitution, First Amendment. It prohibits Congress from making a law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But if the Constitution were to be abolished tomorrow and Congress were to make Christianity illegal or to make some kind of perverse version of Christianity, its official religion, and make the church a a, a sub-state, we would revolt. We would keep on making disciples. We refuse to stop the church there's a second time when we as Christians when we as believers have to say no to the state and disobey and that is when the state commands us to commit acts of evil when the state commands us to commit acts of evil and this requires some discernment when that's actually the case but there have been times when the government has told God's people you have to do this evil thing You have to commit sin. And in these cases, the government has become an anti-government and must be resisted. For example, in the 180s, there was a group of North African Christians. And they had been brought into the court and told by the local governor there that they had to honor the emperor in this way, to swear by the genius of the emperor, which was code for saying he is godlike, he is God himself, and you have to obey him as your Lord. And these 12 Christians, they defied the state. And so they were brought in and they were saying, you, you guys need to, need to honor the emperor this way. And they said, no. One of the 12, a guy named Sparatus, he stood up and he said this. This is so great. He said, I recognize not the empire of this world. But rather, I serve that God whom no man has seen, nor with these eyes can see. And I'd like to tell you that the governor kind of snapped into place and said, oh yeah, of course, of course. But he didn't, and all 12 were beheaded. But the death of these men and women lit a fire in the church, and North African Christianity grew very rapidly. Well, moving closer to home, America has had this too. There's a sad record of state-sponsored eugenics. I'm sorry to say that the spirit of Pharaoh has been in our land too. In The late 1800s and early 1900s, there were a number of progressive thought leaders who were saying that uh, science really tells us, even dictates us, that we have to eliminate certain people groups if we wanna become a great society. In the early 1900s, there were eugenicists, who insisted that various groups, including immigrants, the mentally ill, the genetically abnormal, the poor, and the feeble-minded were a burden to society and should be reduced through surgeries to render them infertile. In fact, it's sad to say, but the Nazis actually learned a lot from Americans. That's where they got many of the ideas. The thought was this, that maybe what we can do is take uh, the people we desire least and forcibly sterilize them, make them impotent, they can't have children, do that against their will. In particular, they thought that these groups, their women, should be sterilized to prevent them from having any more children. And it's sad to say, but in America, the eugenicists were very successful in implementing new laws. In 1907, in Indiana, um, they began implementing state-sponsored sterilization of prisoners. That expanded in 1927. The U.S. Supreme Court actually legalized it for all states to make... Uh, policies where they could forcibly sterilize the people they felt were a problem. This started with prison populations, but it began to expand to Eastern European immigrants, and from there it expanded to p- persons of color. Black women, Native American women, Latinas were targeted especially, and one estimate says about 70,000 sterilizations happened over a 15-year period. This was something that Christians began protesting against. And there were some Protestant voices who came against this and said, no, we cannot abide this. But I've been most impressed that during this time, it was actually our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters who had the heroic voices. More than anybody else, they dissented. Priests and nuns protested. Catholic hospitals refused to perform such surgeries. The lone dissenter on the Supreme Court Pierce Butler, the one guy who said no to forced sterilization, was Catholic. And I would argue that our brothers and sisters gave us a model for defiance. No, we will not participate in wickedness. We will not be a part of your eugenics program. We won't. We won't do evil, even if commanded. And if we can say something about it, we will. Those two things, those two times. Sometimes defiance is necessary. But there's another point here in this passage that's important to point out. This is so cool, you guys. Point number two. God raises up unlikely heroes in moments of defiance. Unlikely heroes. They're the ones who shine in moments of defiance. You know, God, our God, loves the underdog story. He's a huge fan of the movie, Rudy. I know he's a huge fan of writing storylines that are all about the underdog. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven says, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. And this is true in cases of defiance too. We've seen it in our own history here, you remember Rosa Parks, the little black woman who sat in the front of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama and refused to get up? And she's kind of the one who started the civil rights movement as we know it. Do you know who she was? She was a deacon in her church. And at one point she was asked, where did you learn to be so defiant? You know what she said? Quote, it was in church that I learned people should stand up for their rights. Just as the children of Israel stood up to Pharaoh. That's where she became political, was in church. So little Rosa Parks was the one who started that. And God loves doing that sort of thing. He loves using people like Parks. And we can see it in our passage this morning too. God uses who is the key political agents? Mothers. Mothers are the political force in the story of Exodus. Exodus. And I know it's Father's Day. We timed this terribly. I don't know who wrote this schedule. It's Father's Day, I know. But, but it turns out this is a great Mother's Day sermon because guess who the heroes are in Exodus 1 and 2? It's the moms. You know, we didn't read it, but uh, if you look at the very beginning of Exodus, the first few verses, it lists the tribes of Israel. There are 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's something really unusual about them. They're not listed right. They're not listed in birth order. They're not listed in the way that you would expect to find them because you find it elsewhere in a different order. It turns out they're ordered by the mothers. The first four are Leah's kids. The next three, I think, are Rachel's kids. And then the next two groups are from Bilhah and Zilpah. Like, they're actually ordered by mothers. And this is supposed to kind of tip us off. Like, this is a chapter about mothers. Guess who's going to be the center of the story right now? The moms are. Sure enough, you go on, and the mothers are the ones who are sustaining Israel. Israelites are being persecuted, but the mothers are having children. They're multiplying Israel. And then it gets very specific. When Pharaoh's eugenics program kicks in, Shiphrah and Pua, these two midwives, they're told that they're supposed to kill these baby boys, and they don't. They foil Pharaoh's plans. They defy his orders. And they cover for the Hebrew women and their little baby boys. These two women, I think this is an Ethiopian icon, by the way. These two amazing women stand up against the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is, you know, he's looking for the big political forces. He's looking for the the mighty political figures. And he's looking at all the men. But it's not coming from the men. It's the women. It's the mothers, the midwives. They're the ones who are subverting Pharaoh's political plans. You see it, too, with Moses' mother and sister. They're scheming, too. Uh, Later, we find out that their names are Jochebed and Miriam, Moses' mother and sister. And here, we find Jochebed doing something defiant. She refuses to have her baby boy killed. She refuses to turn him over. Rather, she defies the state, and she puts Moses into what? Into a little ark, and she sends it down the Nile. And Moses becomes this new Noah floating down the Nile. What about Miriam? Miriam is kind of like the big older sister who's kind of like a mother. Some of the good big sisters are often that way. She keeps an eye on the action. She keeps an eye on the baby boy as he floats down the river. And then it gets down. It gets caught in the reeds. And who discovers him? By The grace of God by the plan of God. Another woman comes forward. It's Pharaoh's daughter, And Pharaoh's daughter, she hears the baby boy, she sees the baby boy, she has pity on him, and she says, what? Okay, I think I'm going to adopt him. I'm going to keep him. I'm going to make him kind of this royal adoptee. But somebody needs to take care of him. Who? Oh, how about you, Jochebed? I mean, isn't this brilliant? That God wins because he's using the mother's subversion to actually do every single thing that God wants and ends up raising up Moses as that next great leader of Israel. But here it is, the women, even even Pharaoh's princess defying Pharaoh. Folks, you may not feel like a player in God's plan this morning. You may be thinking, I'm not the person in charge. I'm not the mighty person. I'm just some person, little person over here from South Dakota or wherever. You may not feel like a major player in God's plan, but you are. You are. Jesus says of you who are his believers, you are salt and light. You are. You don't think you have a key role to play? God has something different. God asks you, much like Esther was asked, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And what if God is raising you up as a Shifra or a Pua? What if God is raising you up as some kind of ambassador in your circle? You have unique influence in your own little circle. What if God is making you into a secret agent for bringing about life? Well, God loves using the lowly and the unlikely for acts of godly defiance. Here's a third and final point. I noticed this in our text, that believer's defiance is always to be God-fearing and life-giving. When are you supposed to be defiant? Well, some select cases, and the spirit you should have in your heart is pursuing a God-fearing attitude. You're doing it because you fear God, and you do it because you want to bring life. That's when you defy. And that's such a different spirit than what we see. Even people acting in the name of Christ sometimes and hoisting across their motives. So different. It's so different than how we're used to being rebels. Come on, let's be. I, I'm a bit of a rebel myself. Maybe you are too. Uh, came across a great story recently of, uh, of a teenage girl who was given the chore to do the laundry for the family. That was her chore. And she felt this was unfair. It's not fair. You know, that's like the, the F word we use the most. It's not fair. Well, she had this bad attitude. <clears throat> and she decided, to, as her way of protesting, of rebelling, was that she would take all of her parents' socks and mismatch them. <laughs> so it didn't matter what, what socks they pulled out there, they were always going to get the wrong pairing. Is that godly defiance? It's clever. These days we're told to defy the authorities for all sorts of reasons. We get really angry when we feel some of our powers taken away or because we're made to look weak or feel servile or because taxes aren't spent appropriately. And we Americans, were primed to defy. We're really sensitive to what's fair, however we define fairness. We're like this girl with the mismatched socks. But when is it right to defy? What is the right spirit? Well, here we learn from these midwives that the right spirit is God-fearing. They do it because they fear God. Not because of fairness, but because they fear God. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Why were they so right? Why were they so righteous? Why were they rewarded? Look at verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Their fertility grew precisely because they were so obedient to God and feared Him. That was their motivation. The midwives understood that that was one of those moments when they had to decide who is God? Will Pharaoh be God? Or will God be God? Will this king be God or will Yahweh be God? They had to make a choice and they chose correctly. And, brothers and sisters, I'd like to promise you that we're not going to see that in our lifetimes, but we may. We may come across situations on some form of governance that says you have to decide who is God. Daniel was that way. He had to decide who was God and he got thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing. They had to decide who was God, they got thrown in the furnace. And there's lots of stories here. The 12 North African Christians, same thing. Who's going to be God? And they gave the right answer. Will you give the right answer? It's a major theme in Exodus, we're going to find out. It's a matter of who the people will fear more. Folks, you are, life is going to be fearful. You have to expect there's going to be fear in this life. But take heart, because the one who is worthy of true fear will banish all of the other fears. If you have the fear of the Lord, if you honor him and respect him and have him in your sights, and you understand his almighty power to not just kill, but also to cast body and soul into hell, but also to have power over death itself and to raise you from the dead, if you fear that God, the rest of your fears vanish. The mother's defiance, though, is also life-giving. Thank God for these mothers. They show us a great model here. They're they're life-giving. That's why they defy. They're not doing it out of anger, necessarily. They're saying, how do we actually bring about life? I mean, they're midwives, after all. They're supposed to bring about life. The mothers, what do they do? They bring about life. And Pharaoh says, no, take away life. And they say, no. That's not who we are. We're life-giving. You understand? Have we talked about the name of this church recently? (laughs) We bring about life. That's our job here. That's our honor. Well, the mothers bring about life. They do it to save the lives of God's chosen people. I'd argue it's even a way of giving life to the Egyptians. They don't want the Egyptians to heap guilt upon themselves. But every single woman in this passage, she models for us what it means to be life-giving, to bring about this kind of life. Even Pharaoh's daughter, she does this too. Why does she do it? Why does she rebel against her father? Why does she take her own safety and her own status into question? Why? Because look at verse uh, 6 of chapter 2. She did it out of pity. When God moves you, To have pity. Follow that. The fear of the Lord and that life giving pity. Let that drive you. Let me finish this up. There are times when we are allowed to rebel, in fact, we're commanded to defy the government. We challenge the governing authorities in select times when it comes down to a matter of making disciples or doing what is truly right and defying commands to do evil. And God loves using the unlikely people, the underdogs, people like you and me, even in those moments. But when you rebel, do it the holy way. Let it be God-fearing and life-giving. And you know what? We're not always going to do this correctly. We're not always going to see how we're supposed to do this. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you ever lose your way, put your eyes on Jesus. God knew you would struggle in this area, so he sent his only son. God knew you were going to struggle in this area, so he himself came down to model what rebellion looks like. And this Jesus, he was the unlikeliest of heroes. Right, This one we worship, he is an obscure, poor peasant who ended up transforming the world. As Jesus, he taught us true rebellion against the world through his teachings and miracles, and in the end, he did the greatest act of defiance ever. He let an angry mob turn him over to the Roman Empire to be crucified. But there on the cross, he had victory because he took away sins. He took away your sins. And he opened up the way to God. And the gospel tells us that on the third day he rose again from the dead. He didn't just defy the world, he defied death itself. You want to learn true defiance? Learn it from Jesus. You want to understand what true rebellion looks like? Learn rebellion from Jesus, the true rebel. He will teach you how to stand against the world in the right way. He will give you victory over Satan, sin, and death. He will give you the power. And you will become a true rebel. You'll become the true rebel you were always meant to be. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, show us Jesus again. You've had grace on us. You've taken us uh, out of control Americans, as out of control Westerners, or people from all over the world. You've taken rebels from every tongue and tribe and nation, and, and you've loved us. But God, we know we need to be reformed, we know we need to be shaped. So we open our hearts to that. You show us what to do. You show us how to be. But God, most of all, just make us fervent for you. God, we know that if we fear you, we see you rightly, we fear you properly, that it all falls into line. So in this season, make us into those people, God. You have power to shape us. You have power to remake our hearts. You have power to remake this church, to make it anew. You're mighty to save Thank you for being that God. Thank you for being the God who sees us, who attends to us, who's going to use us. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name.